Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Oil is above all a great temptation. It is the temptation of ease, wealth, strength, fortune, power. It is filthy, foul-smelling liquid that squirts obligingly up into the air and falls back to earth as a rustling shower of money. To discover and possess the source of oil, it feels as if, after wandering long underground, you have suddenly stumbled upon royal treasure. Not only do you become rich, but you are also visited by the mystical conviction that some higher power has looked upon you with the eye of grace and magnanimously elevated you above all others, electing you its favourite. The concept of oil expresses perfectly the eternal human dream of wealth achieved through lucky accidents, through a kiss of fortune and not by sweat, anguish, hard work. In this sense, oil is a fairy tale, and like every fairy tale, a bit of a lie. So Tom, Tom Holland, that was uh, Richard Kapuczynski, the great Polish travel writer, in his brilliant book, Shah of Shahs, about Mohammed Reza Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran, was of course, well, he had his pretty catastrophic uh, encounter with oil because it was the oil boom of the 1970s that basically brought him down. And the fascinating thing about this is that the story of oil and energy is this kind of occult history that runs in parallel with the traditional kind of political histories. Yeah. But, but they do intersect and occasionally in the traditional books, oil kind of pops up. But actually, we don't, you know, we take it for granted. We don't really dig into it as much as we, as much as we should do the question of energy and energy dependence, do we? Yeah, you're absolutely. And um, a couple of months, I think, before Christmas, we did an episode on the oil crisis of 73, 74. Uh, And one of the things that actually wasn't just the political context that made me want to do that. It was reading in manuscript um, a book that kind well, actually, uh, do you know, Dominic, very modestly, I'm going to read what I said about it because it's appeared appeared on the back of the book. Regular listeners will know that Tom reading his own words is a a familiar feature of this podcast. I know, shameless. But I said to read this on the history of the past centuries, to see it in a sudden sharp definition, it is akin to looking through glass after the window cleaner has been. And that window cleaner, Dominic, was the, the great Helen Thompson, I'm sure she'd be delighted is, by that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> professor of political economy at Cambridge. Um, she uh, was presenter of a fabulous podcast called Talking Politics, which was actually not just the first podcast I ever listened to, but the first podcast on which I appeared. Oh. So we have Helen with us now. So I feel I'm very much returning the favour. And Helen, your book just out this week, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. I, I won't say you've been lucky with the timing, because obviously no one would would want to see what we're seeing at the moment. But um, it's a book in which you cast the current crisis in Ukraine as being part of a continuum that reaches back at least a century. And essentially, your argument is, and I don't want to overly paraphrase you, but that if you want to understand geopolitics of the past century, you've got to look at oil. Absolutely. And I think that when you do, and as you've kind of suggested by comparing me to a window cleaner, <laughs> when you do that, um, the, the history of the 20th century looks somewhat different. And I think it looks quite disturbing in some ways for those of us who would like to have perhaps a some, um, what should we say, a, a more liberal take on that history. Yeah. Um, because it involves looking at some of the things that, that happened in terms of 
the way in which the European powers who did have access to oil via their empires behaved and what the consequences of that were for other countries, including what the consequences of that were most importantly for Germany. So let's go back to the very beginning of the story, um, Helen. So oil becomes a factor in world affairs. I oh, suppose Dominic. In... Oh, yeah. So, when, you, so... when you say go back to the beginning. Oh, no. Come on. Were you, were you thinking that we could get away with not mentioning the very first historian to mention oil? That's exactly what I was thinking. Do you know yeah. who that was? Um, I'm going to guess it was Herodotus, Tom. It was. It was. Uh, because Herodotus, in his great history, describes yeah. the fate of um, a city that was targeted by the expedition that was sent by Darius, the king of Persia, to destroy Athens, which got defeated at Marathon. But before the defeat at Marathon, he, they destroyed a city called Eretria, and the Eretrians got taken to a region of Iran where, Herodotus says, there is um, a kind of black liquid uh, and he calls it Radinaki. It's black and it gives off a revolting stench. <laughs> so the ancients were definitely aware of, of oil and of gas. Um, and in fact, I, right at the moment, I'm reading um, Pliny the Elder, who you know, this is a fantastic encyclopedia, absolutely panoramic. And he describes oil and the things that he says oil is good for, cement. And like Herodotus, he cites uh, the walls of Babylon, used oil in the cement for, for the Great Wolves of Babylon, keeping away snakes, toothache, <laughs> <laughs> curing leprosy, curing epilepsy, gout, and coughs. So even then, even in the age of Pliny, they knew that it was a valuable substance. Um, and, and that may be why I just actually was researching this this morning uh, by going into the Bodleian. And I found, that, did, you, did you two know that there is an oil well in New Mexico called Pliny the Elder? So I did not. Did you I know, did that, not know that either. I, I just throw that in because I know this is going to be a very 20th century co discussion, but I just wanted to, you know, shout out for Herodotus and... Uh, and <laughs> That's so, fair I'm enough. I'm sorry, Dominic, I cut you That's off. That's all right. There. Don't worry. Don't worry. But Helen, the story starts in the 19th century, doesn't it? So what are we? 1850s, 1860s, kerosene, the first oil well. So even at that point, do, are people conscious that this is going to mark, do you think, a kind of uh, a geopolitical change? I think at a certain point in the last third of the 19th century that in Europe, uh, in Britain and Germany, um, and to some extent in France, so I think it's less well understood in, in France, um, a terrible fear takes hold that the United States has this thing, oil, mm. um, commercial drilling for oil, uh, and the ability to, to sell this oil around the world, or certainly in Europe and um, Asia anyway, and that this is going to have momentous consequences. I don't think that they can see the whole future of the 20th century by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I do think the conjunction of the United States becoming a continental state, having reached the Pacific, plus having this new energy source that in some sense seems like miraculous, particularly in its first uses in relation to, to, to kerosene for, for lighting, yeah, and I think in some sense it puts the fear of God into them, and and I think that they that, that it's difficult in a way to understand that the, the the obsession with Africa and colonizing Africa in the latter part of the nineteenth century by the European powers without seeing that they think that this is their potential, this is their opportunity to try to catch up with the United States to compete with the United States that this might be the resource rich hinterland for for Europe in the way in which. The continent of the United States with this oil is proof for, for the for the for the United States. Yeah, because you've got what Standard Oil in the eighteen seventies, John D. Rockefeller's company, and 
using kerosene and in sort of lighting and and stuff so so that's precisely the point isn't it where the united states is coming out of the american civil war sort of industrially economically it's it's catching up and then overhauling britain so so the sort of the scramble for africa and all that that all that sort of colonial anxiety that you get at the end of the 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 19th century do you think there's a sort of sense of technological and economic change underpinning a lot of that then at least I think it's a sense of technological and e- economic fear. And I think that in some sense, it, it simply is perhaps even actually more understood on the straightforward resource question rather than necessarily a technology question um, at that point. I think when it becomes a technology question uh, is really when the United States goes down the road, thanks to Henry Ford of mass car production. And, and Helen, is that does mass car production happen because America has the oil? I mean, is it as kind of basic that's a more complicated question because actually uh, henry um, ford's um, model t cars they don't necessarily have to run on oil it's a choice he creates them in way he he, he constructs them in ways where that where 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 they could um they they, they basically could run on alcohol alcohol fuel (laughs) so in a sense it's a kind of darwinian test for for it in which oil proves itself Oil proves itself, and 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 what we see with the the production of the mass production of the car uh, is is that really I think changes the whole nature of industrial production in the United States and those huge Ford factories that are created um, in um, in Michigan. So what starts off I think as a, a resource fear in in Europe becomes a sense a fear that actually the United States has made this huge technological breakthrough and it's just going to leave everybody uh, behind unless it, unless that they do something to change their relationship to this energy source right and so um that means that european powers need to, you know they've, they've looked to africa but of course the, the the place as people have known since at least the time of herodotus where <laughs> oil is literally bubbling up out of the ground is the middle east and in the build-up to the first world war you have this very very intense competition between britain and germany a kind of control of this region or at least to influence this region um and i guess that you could say that that as much as anything is a portent of what is going to happen for the century and more that's going to follow uh very much so i mean they first start looking for uh, oil in persia in i think it's 19 1901 and the first and is that the british dis- who are doing yeah that? first significant discovery is in in 1908 and obviously britain's in a much stronger position in persia than 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 germany um is and there's a considerable hope by this point there's going to be oil in Mesopotamia too because of it being uh, in um, Persia and I think that what you can then see through the immediate years leading up to the, the the First World War is is that the British and the Germans competing to see who can have the the foothold that is going to control those resources the foothold in the Middle East to control those resources in the in the future Britain's obviously in a, in a stronger position but the Kaiser goes a long way. In yeah. developing a relationship with the Ottoman Empire that goes back really to the eighteen um, nineties, um, and he physically uh, goes there, doesn't he? I mean, he goes on yeah. kind of trips around the it Ottoman provinces. There's a whole Berlin Baghdad railway side, absolutely, is- yeah. And I mean, because they want the, the building the railway uh, in part because they want the and Deutsche Bank, the big German bank, is an important part of that story, and they have a concession to look for oil on the by the side of the railway, um, essentially, and and that is why. And the Kaiser's keen on also bringing the the Ottomans into into the into the First World War. That's a central relationship for the Kaiser's idea of Germany's future. Is is that the Kaiser? Sorry, the 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 Ottoman Empire is the route to Germany having 
an energy resource empire. Um, just on this this question of the build up to the First World War, I mean, one thing that I hadn't really well, the, the sort of in the in the public imagination, certainly in Britain, when we think of oil, we think of America and we think of the Middle East. Mm. But actually, we don't think about the place that was America's great rival as an oil producer before the First World War, which is Russia, which obviously, I mean, Russia and energy could hardly be more timely. So am I right in thinking that at the very beginning of the 20th century, so literally as we enter the 20th century, Russia is actually the world's biggest oil producer because of its ownership of what's now Azerbaijan, Baku? Yeah, this this uh, oil in, in Baku is very important. It's going to play uh, like a crucial role in the, in the story um, of the first half of the 20th century. Um, and we can actually there was just to go back to a point that Tom might um, like is there's, there's there was knowledge there was oil in in Baku and some uses being made of it back to the ninth century, but serious drilling then uh, taking place in the latter third of the the nineteenth century, uh, and crucially um, once the um, the Russians get hold of Batumi from the Ottomans then they have a, a way of getting that oil from. Um, Baku uh, to out into um, out into the the Black Sea and into the into the Mediterranean, and that is crucial for their ability to to sell oil in the Asian um, market. So what you see is in the early part of the twentieth century, the very first few years, is a, a really clear competition between the Russian companies and Standard Oil, the the big American company, as to who can sell oil most effectively, successfully, both in Europe and in um, Asia. And for a while, the, the Russian companies are at an advantage, and partly they're at an advantage, obviously, because of the geographical position of, relation, of, of Russia in relation to these markets um, compared to the um, United States. But the political situation in Russia you know, deteriorates you know, very considerably, particularly uh, in the context of the Russia's defeat in the war with Japan in 1905. And in Sort of these, this uh, great labour struggle that goes on in, in in Baku, which Stalin was himself involved in as a you know a trade union organizer. Um, essentially, a lot of the a lot of the oil wells in Baku get burned, uh, and so in that in that per- period, then Russian between 1905 and 1914, then Russian oil production falls off somewhat. But already, so at the beginning of the 20th century, you'd look at geopolitics and you'd say. You know, the European powers remain what they've been for at least a century, perhaps two centuries, the, the, the great controllers of Eurasia. They, they are the dominant powers in Eurasia. But already you can see the lineaments evolving where actually the European powers are going to be squeezed by America and by Russia. And I hadn't realized until I read your book just how fundamental the fact that those two powers have oil actually was. And Dominic said that in a way it's a kind of a cult history that once you, you realize the role that oil is playing, you start to see all kinds of um, events and perhaps particularly conflicts in a new manner. So the First World War, could you describe the First World I mean, w- would it be feasible to describe the First World War as a war over oil? Would that be going too far? I wouldn't certainly. I, I certainly don't think you can um, give an account of the reasons why the First World War breaks out when it does in the summer of 1914 after the, the crisis generated by um, Franz Ferdinand's assassination in, in, in Sarajevo, which makes oil fundamental to the motives of the, the players. I, I think that that, that, that is a, I, I don't really I, I don't really buy that. I think what is important to understand about the, the First World War is that we in this country, and I certainly, until I really started thinking um, about oil, in fact, I would say until I actually started writing the first geopolitical chapter of, uh, of disorder, 
kind of, I think, are accustomed in Britain and perhaps in France, to some extent maybe in Germany um, too, to thinking about the First World War through the Western Front uh, and not to think about it in terms of the, the war in the in the East. And I think that once the war has begun, um, it, both in the case of Britain and Germany, um, there is a strong sense of that the stakes are the future of the Ottoman Empire and the future of the territory that the Ottoman right. Empire um, controls. And they both make moves in the very early weeks of the war uh, in that in that context. And the great irony of, of the First World War in this respect, in its geopolitics, is, is on the one hand, it renders you know, Britain and France as the two victorious European powers completely financially beholden to the United States. Uh, and significantly reduces their, you know, that freedom of manoeuvre. On the other hand, is is they get something pretty significant out of the First World War, um, which is a position in the Middle East, particularly in Britain's case, much stronger than had been its position in the Middle East before the the war had the First World War had begun. And the Americans are shut out of it because they hadn't declared war on the Ottomans, had they? Yeah, Americans have supplied eighty percent of the oil that the Allies have used during the the course uh, of the war by nineteen nineteen. The United States is having to import oil. W- President Woodrow Wilson is really concerned about uh, oil, you know, the, the long-term prospects for uh, American oil supply. And there are these two countries, <laughs> Britain and France, having acquired themselves essentially in an empire in the Middle East where there were great prospects for more oil um, to be found. Bringing us to the Middle East raises a question from one of our listeners, Alexander Kuzel. And he says, and I think it's a great question actually, without oil, without oil, would the Middle East be just a curious backwater of Europe and Asia, mostly untouched by the European powers? And obviously, until this point, the Middle East, well, certainly Arabia, plays very little part, you could argue, in the sort of British colonial imagination. But afterwards, it you know it becomes greater and greater and greater. So the oil presumably fundamentally reshapes the attitude that the European powers have to the Middle East. And actually, just to indulge the counterfactual for a, for a moment, mm. would we care about it at all if it weren't for oil? Is the consp- are the conspiracy theories about oil and, and, and Western policy in the Middle East, are they right? I think that the British did care about the Middle East before uh, oil um, came along. They cared about the, the Persian Gulf uh, in, in particular um, before, those, I mean, before there's any uh, oil found anywhere in the Middle East, so before 1908. Securing links to India because of India, um, and, and uh, I think that the, the, the initial British interest in in the Middle East really comes in relation to protecting the, the routes to um, India, and then the oil interest comes um, once oil is discovered in Persia in in 1908, and the British thinking that they that this is the way in which that they can compete or at least not lose to 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 the United States and in, in the world that in the geopolitical world that oil is. Um, creating and if you then say we i'm not saying we should straightforwardly skip on until after the second world war but just as an answer to your question um dominic once the, the british are out of india so after 1947 i think it's reasonable to say that there's not much else going on but an interest in in oil and then later in gas because hmm. helen am I, am I right that the sykes pico line which divides up the near east um between Britain and France, that the British kind of um, adjust this otherwise straight line to ensure that they get Mosul and all the oil fields around it. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about that, though, I think it's it's overdone because at that point is the contest for who's going to control the Ottoman, what has been the, the Ottoman Empire, hasn't at all been um, resolved. 
Um, and actually, um, you know, the, the British uh, in the latter part of 1918 have got hopes of getting much more than that, including control of the Dardanelles. Um, and that means that um, the really crucial juncture in this is the fact that Turkey, once Turkey you know, is created as an independent state, is able to assert itself more significantly than might have been imagined back in 1916 to hold on to some of this for itself. And which is quite a surprise, I think, at maybe again in 1918, um, is, is that the, the Soviet Union, which loses control of Baku um, in the aftermath of the, so, so around the time of the, the revolution um, anyway, actually re-establishes control over Baku. So there's a point in which all of the, essentially the Ottomans, the Germans and the British have got hopes of controlling um, Baku, mm-hmm. but actually it's the Soviets that end that period, let's say by 1923, by the time of the the, the, the agreement with Turkey, um, which you might say is the final end of fighting over all this. In those, in, in those years, it's the Soviets that, go, that, that are going to keep it. I was going to say, if we fast forward then to World War Two, so, I mean, World War Two is not a war, I would say, Tom, about oil, but oil comes to play an enormous part of it. I mean, the two... So the two things that, if you know a little bit about the Second World War, the two things that people always think about oil are, one, oil makes the Nazis, draws the Nazis into this terrible trap of going for um, Russia and the Caucasus because they re- they're desperate to get the oil, and two, that oil also plays a part in Japan's sort of dash to um, to Southeast Asia and their desperation to knock out the Americans at Pearl Harbor and all of that sort of thing. Are those Are those sort of and they're not quite urban myths they're, they're just sort of commonplaces i suppose are those both true helen would you say yeah i mean i think that it, it's hard to underestimate hitler's obsession with oil i mean he's obsessed with it you know like back in the in the 1920s he's obsessed about what's going on in the texan oil fields apparently like he knew about the names of pretty much all the all, all the oil fields in the um american um west and he has this idea um that unless the the germany takes baku that the wars over and in some sense he's not wrong well hello yeah i mean you, you, you amazing comment that oil weakness was a near sufficient motive for the invasion about Operation but at the same Barbarossa. time as dominic says it's a terrible trap because it's necessary and it's entirely destructive because of what it actually means in fighting a war with the soviet union to to do that so it is that story in a way that dominic's telling at the beginning of like oil you know it's this it's this huge temptation and if it's successful, then in one sense it brings rewards beyond people's imagination. On the other hand, it can bring te- it brings terrible destruction when the pursuit of it goes yeah. wrong. Is it the case that oil amplifies the effectiveness of what is you know since the time of the Napoleonic Wars has been British strategy, which is to use naval power essentially to throttle continental rivals? Yeah, I mean this question about the naval security uh, or using navies to bring to, for energy security purposes is, is obviously like part of the um, is obviously part of the story, and part of what is going to go on in the in this post Second World War world is the question of who is going to provide of the Western countries who is going to provide that naval security for initially west european oil imports out of the middle east and then what are going to become american oil imports out of the middle east in the in the 1970s and the reason why you know the british empire from this point of view is still necessary uh, in the post-war world is precisely because the answer that not only the british want but the americans actually in some sense demand 
is is that Britain is going to be the naval power uh, yeah. in the in the Middle East that is going to that is going to do this um, work. The Americans don't want to use their naval supremacy for this purpose in the immediate years um, after um, the war. In fact, you could argue that they don't really want to use it until the 1990s, once we get to yeah. the first Gulf War. I mean, I thought that was really striking. And again, I hadn't properly appreciated the degree, the paradoxical quality of the Suez crisis, mm. which um, is, of course, famous as an example of America using its financial muscle essentially to kind of cripple British imperial efforts while simultaneously wanting Britain to continue as a kind of guarantor of oil supplies in, in the Middle East. I think we should take a break at this point and perhaps we could, uh, we could look at this kind of what's obviously an absolutely key development in post-war history after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to the rest of history. We are talking oil um, and we are exploring the question of how important a role has it played in geopolitics over the past century and more. Um, and Helen, we have reached uh, the post-war world uh, as we were talking before the break. This is a world where um, America and the Soviet Union, both of them great oil powers, have a preponderant role to play in world politics, but where the role of the, the, the old European empires and perhaps particularly the British empire is not completely gone. Um, so how important is, is the role that oil plays in the retreat from empire, both not just for Britain, but also perhaps for France as well? Well, I think the, the first thing to say here is that actually, you know, Britain's empire at the point in which it's falling away elsewhere, and obviously most consequentially the withdrawal from uh, India and India's independence, it's about in some sense to start to matter even more 
um, that it had previously um, done. It's because now um, the whole of Western Europe is pretty much dependent on the supply of oil um, through from the Middle East. Uh, that is coming in part through a pipeline out into the Mediterranean, but a lot of it is coming up the Suez Canal um, and out into the Mediterranean um, that way. Uh, and in some sense, the, the the power that's supposed to take responsibility for keeping the, the Suez Canal open and for dealing um, with whatever threats to the openness of the canal there may be arising from instability in various Arab countries and politics is is Britain. Uh, and the United States, as I said, simply does not want to play that role. So on the one hand, the Americans right from the start in the in the in the post Second World War world are very keen to present the British as imperialist and nasty imperialists and that America's on the side of, you know, like national liberation and post-colonial self-determination, um, etc. Um, but they very much want the British to be playing the imperial role that it's doing, even though at various points leading up to the Suez crisis, they make things pretty difficult um, for um, Britain in terms of its where its military, in terms of where its military bases are, in order to protect the position um, at um, uh, at Suez. So, are you saying they're massive hypocrites? <laughs> Is that what you're saying, Helen? <laughs> Yeah, I think that I, I, I think that they are. I, I'm afraid I do think that they are massive hypocrites um, about um, this. I mean, I'm not saying for a moment that it, it's not a it's not, it's a pretty difficult position that they're all in, uh, because on the one hand is that uh, well, let's go just go back one step. Is is obviously the, the the post-war Second World War politics of the Middle East has been also hugely complicated by the creation of Israel as an independent um, state. Um, so. The Americans are committed to Israel, but they also want to be seen as sympathetic to um, Arab nationalism. Uh, and it's quite obvious the ways in which they try to navigate between that those problems. What's less obvious and goes on below the surface is the way that they deal with the, with the British, which is, is we need you to do things, we need you to be there, but we don't want you to embarrass us by looking too much like an, an old archaic imperial power. One of the fascinating things about the Suez crisis, Helen, um, so we have a question from Alfonso the Fourteenth, the Pretender. He actually sent in eighteen questions. We're not going <laughs> to we're not going to ask them all, but he asked a question that might not seem to some people connected to Suez. But I was fascinated by the connections that you draw in the book. So he his question was why? How did OPEC? How was OPEC allowed to happen? And if I understand it right, in the aftermath of the Suez crisis, the Western European countries. Um, become much more interested in alternative sources of oil and some of them start looking to the soviet union and you start getting soviet oil exports in a much bigger way to, to western europe then the american producers to compete with that drop their prices and that outrages the arab oil producers and venezuela and they then set up opec have i got so, that right so John, that... just explain what opec is for people who so may opec not know what is that the is. cartel of the, the basically the cartel, the association of major oil producing countries. So, Helen, is that right? Is OPEC basically a consequence of the interaction between Suez and the Cold War? I guess in the short term, I think yeah, it very much is so. Is is it's because the um, the what will become the OPEC members, those oil producing countries, are so aghast when the the big the oil majors cut prices um, to. European um, to European markets because they've now got to compete um, with Soviet oil. That those oil producing um, countries um, say, well, we don't like the way that this works. We want more say in 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 prices. Now, I think you could argue that 
energy nationalism um, was on the rise, that energy nationalism in oil producing countries, um, particularly um, in the Middle East, because you can see it actually in Mexico going back to 1911 and the Mexican um, Revolution. As the British Empire in the Middle East is becoming more difficult to sustain, I think we would have expected to see a rise of, or the Arab nationalism would take the form of energy nationalism. On the other hand, if we say, well, how in practice did OPEC come about? There is a very clear line, causal line, sequence of events that run from the aftermath of Suez, the Western European turn to Soviet oil exports, the way in which the American, or the majors, I should say, the big oil, the big seven, as they were then called, respond to that. And Venezuela's moved to create OPEC. Yeah. And America then, because of this, gets drawn more and more to replace Britain. You talked about how um, it's a tremendous strain on British foreign policy, that it has to kind of square its desire for both um, Arab and Israeli support. The other thing for which Britain is notorious in the the Middle East, um, certainly in Iran, is its readiness to meddle and pull strings and pull the carpet out from under governments. Um, And America starts to, you know, if Britain, Britain kind of become slowly becomes the little Satan, America steps in to become the great Satan. Do you think that um, essentially the the problems that American foreign policy has has faced in the in the Near East are, you know, they've inherited the foreign problems, foreign policy problems that the British had faced. And essentially, it is oil that explains the existence of those problems. Yes, but I put a big interlude in the middle of 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 that and which is that when we get to 1971 when the british withdraw from east of Suez, and they've made it clear um, a few years before that that this is going to happen the americans are absolutely aghast at that they regard it as a as a terrible um betrayal um and earlier in the decade so in the 60s when when johnson it's, i think it's about 1964 1965 he manages basically to make sure that the, the Labour government gets some more financial help to prop up Sterling to try to, to, to avoid the, the eventual outcome, the decision that Howard Wilson's government makes to withdraw from um, east of, of, of Suez. But given that this is happening in the late 60s, I think the, the, uh, I'm pretty sure it's, it's sometime after the Sterling devaluation, so either late 1967 or early 1968, when Wilson announces the withdrawal from east of Suez, the Americans are deep in Vietnam crisis at this um, point. So the idea that the United States could replace Britain as the military power in the Middle East that's supposed to do this work of providing energy security, that's an, that's an absolute non-starter. And so the American um, reaction uh, by this point when Nixon's in, in power is to say, look, the British are gone. We don't want to be there ourselves. So we're going to have to rely on the Saudis and we're going to have to rely on Iran. Well, that's kind of problematic on any number of levels, even at the beginning, not least because of the rivalry between Saudi Arabia uh, and um, Iran. And obviously, you know, the Shah thinks he can get all kinds of things um, for um, obliging the Americans um, in this um, respect. And the 70s, I think, then, in this sense, where the Middle East is concerned, can just be seen as a mess from the American point of view, because neither the Saudis or Iran, even before we get to the Iranian Revolution, can do can do what they needed to do from the American point of view. And and then when the Iranian revolution happens, um, things go, you know, just total disaster 
for the for for, 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 for the American um, position because now they're only left they're not only only left with the, the, the Saudis but they've actually got sanctions on Iran so they're actually losing Iran Iranian oil off the market then Iran the Iran Iraq war starts um, which takes Iraqi significantly reduces Iraqi oil um, production as um, well and although Jimmy Carter comes up with this thing that he calls the that gets called the the Carter Doctrine, which is the United States is going to basically intervene if there's any external threat to American security interests, which mean energy security interests in the in the um, in the Middle East. It's not really very effective until we get to the first Gulf War. So actually, I would say that the story of the 70s and the 80s is when the British have gone, the Americans can't go there themselves. The proxies that they rely on are unreliable, including, it must be said, really using Iraq as a proxy in the 1980s during the course of the Iraq-Iran um, um, war. And it's only when the Soviet Union's been taken out of the picture, effectively, um, by the dissolution of the Soviet um, Empire in Eastern Europe in 1989, coming before the dissolution of the Soviet Union with the Gulf War like, you know, like in, in the middle, that an American president is willing to commit American military power to the problem. Before we get on to the the, the, the two Iraq wars, because I think they're really important in the story, and, and listeners will be keen to hear about them, just a quick note on um, the Soviet Union. So we did a series of podcasts about the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the rise of Putin in Russia. And quite a lot of listeners were interested because we talked about oil and oil prices as a, as a factor in the Soviet um in 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 the in the story of the Soviet kind of implosion in the eighties. So Helen, do you think? Well, here's another question from Alfonso the Fourteenth, the Pretender. He's on fire, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's sixteen more questions to go. Um, so <laughs> he, keep us going. So he says, is the Soviet Union the greatest victim of the oil resource curse? Um, and I mentioned Kapuscinski's, you know, lines at the beginning of the podcast. So the Soviet Union basks under Brezhnev um, in this kind of complacency because it has because oil prices are very high in the 70s and then in the 80s obviously oil prices collapse and that's the you know their economy that's so dependent upon oil and gas then basically implodes gorbachev tries his reform program and it all goes wrong do you think that that that, that oil is is the key factor in the in the collapse of this sort of soviet experiment i think that this this is a really that this is a quite hard question uh to answer i mean I would fall back again on saying that if we look at the sequence of events as they happened, it's pretty important because it basically wrecks the finances of the, the Soviet state. And they're very quickly out of Afghanistan after the oil um, price um, crash. Um, because they're, they're struggling financially, they, they need loans from eventually from like Western governments, Western banks, um, in order to be able to pay for the food import their food um, import um, bill. So it brings a, a systemic crisis to the fore and basically means that Gorbachev has very few options. You could argue that perhaps if he hadn't also been trying to pursue the economic reforms he had at the same time, it would have been easier. But still, it, 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 it was, I think, a, a massive blow. And I think it's also true that if you look at the expansion of Soviet military power in the 70s and the ways in particularly their um, involvement um, in, in South African um, countries um, that actually, well, and Afghanistan for that um, matter, that the conditions in which the Soviets engaged in 
military overstretch also had an oil underpinning from the oil boom of the 70s and the fact that the Soviet Union at that point was the world's largest oil producer. Indeed, it was still the world's largest oil producer when, when the oil price crash happened in, in 1986. So I, I, I'm certainly prepared to say that I think that the, the Soviet Union would have lasted longer and that its crisis wouldn't have been so sudden. Yeah. I think that's the thing that, that really... Um, distinguishes the way that it happened in practice from the way that it possibly could have happened without the oil price crash. And and I think the fact that it did happen in the way in which it did so suddenly, both in Eastern Europe and then in 1991 with the dissolution of the the Soviet Union, that was pretty consequential um, because it meant that this huge geopolitical change in Europe and indeed in Asia uh, and Central Asia in, in, in particular happened you know, almost like with scarcely any consequence in, in, in some sense, not scarcely any consequence for the people who were being liberated from Soviet rule, but I just mean in terms of the the, the, the fact that it happened without without violence. Uh, and yeah. I think that anything that had been a more protracted crisis of the Soviet Union would not mm-hmm. have played out in that way. Although, of course, there's an argument that the violence was merely postponed. That's what, Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that there is, I mean, if, when we get on to the future, I think in, in that sense is the extraordinarily peacefulness of, of 89 and 91 in some sense, we're now living with the consequences of history having caught up with that. As usual, our attempts to sum up an enormously lengthy and complex topic in a single episode has failed. So uh, I think what we're going to have to do is we have to come back tomorrow for another episode with Helen, if that's okay with Helen. Good, it is. Um, so uh, and in that episode, we'll look at more recent history. So the Gulf Wars, the Nord Stream, um, current events in Ukraine, future of energy. Uh, I mean, so huge topics. Um, and you know there is no one better to be discussing these topics with than Helen Thompson. So hopefully see you tomorrow. Until then, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>